Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Star Wars Saga Cast. My name is John Wilson. This is episode 16 of the show, where we're going to be taking a look at Star Wars number 12 after a brief stop over at Pizzazz number, I think we're on six now. Yes, six. Last episode was issue episode 15, feedback episode. I have not recorded that yet, so I honestly have no idea how it's going to go. But uh, depending on how much you've written in, we'll see how it went. This episode, however, no feedback. We'll wait another month before I round up all my feedback again. So episode 30 is the next time you can expect that. Please feel free to write in your emails each episode, though, with your thoughts and that is going to be at the Star Wars Saga Cast at gmail.com. Okay, so topics for today. Pizzazz is a magazine being published by Marvel. It has a three-page Star Wars strip in it. And the cover for this issue has um, some guy with a leopard on his back. It's like Craven the Hunter, only blonde, and the leopard is still alive and not like draped around, not like, you know, a jacket for him. Very, very honest. It's a circus, basically. And if I look inside, I find out that this blonde haired man's name is Gunther Gebel Williams. And he is involved with, I think, the Ringling Brothers Circus. I don't know. So we don't really care too much about him. There's not much interest on the cover besides just, you know, the weird looking blonde guy. However, on the inside is Star Wars, continuing the adventures of characters from the science fantasy film by George Lucas, released by 20th Century Fox. Now, this episode is entitled, Do You Know What Your Children Are? As opposed to Where Do You Know What Your Children Are? And it's written by Roy Thomas with art continuing from Howard Chaikin and Tony DeZaniga with Rick Parker, the letterer. And I'm guessing that... Roy Thomas and Howard Chaikin probably knocked this entire story out in pretty short order while they were doing the uh, Han Solo story. Um, they've, they've left the book. They've left the Marvel comics. So I don't really know why they would continue to do a monthly three-page story, but who knows? Rick Parker is the letterer here. And it's kind of interesting because I just ran across a post from him on Facebook how he uh, <laughs> he had to go through a lot of interesting uh, choices for his name. Having been named Richard from birth, Ricky and Dick were both unfortunate names for him because there are lots of unpleasant words that rhyme with Ricky. And we probably don't have to think too hard about why he would have a hard time with the name Dick. And so Rick was something he went by for most of his life. He tried Richard when he was doing like an artist artistic thing but but rick was what he stuck with now the story so far is that luke skywalker princess leia and the two droids have crash landed on a strange planet and are being pursued by imperial stormtroopers when they suddenly vanish from sight so we don't know where they're going to reappear but now we see wherever they are it is a bit of a shambles and there are four strangely dressed children coming out to say hello they look normal and human enough except for their eyes which glow with a strange fire back on the previous scene the the ruined temple in the middle of the jungle the imperial captain is very upset that they've lost the rebels and they're going to tear the place apart until they find them okay but these strange children they get the names of luke and leia but they don't have names themselves uh, Luke and Leia are kind of stymied by this idea. How do you know which one of you is which? 
which is a weird question to ask because they look very different. I mean, I don't have to have a name. You don't have to know my name. But if you saw my face, you could tell me apart from other people. Hey, you fat comic nerd with the bald head. You know, you could say that. So it's kind of a weird question to ask. But of course, this is children's literature. But it is a segue into us learning that one of the youths with red hair and orange and yellow pants and not much else, he can control fire. A blue haired girl with a purple, um, basically it's like a one piece bathing suit, but with only one shoulder strap. So she has one bare shoulder. She can control rain even inside. Another girl with more of a sort of a unitard workout outfit can control wind inside. And the fourth child, who's a boy who has like a green tunic and blue uh, tight pants, he can control earth, make the earth move under your feet or even cover you up if I wanted to, which he does to R2 to demonstrate and R2 doesn't like it. Now you've done it. You'd frighten the little fellow. Sorry, I didn't mean to. How did you kids get here anyway? Where are your parents? Parents? What are parents? So these kids have no parents. They do have superpowers. And just then, the stormtroopers, who must have found the same button that C-3PO did, they have materialized behind them. Now, I do want to pause a moment to say that the uh, brief drop line of dialogue mentions that the children did see the ships fall from the sky. So we have not transported to another planet or some other dimension or something. We just have literally gone from one place on the planet to another. But now the bad guys have followed, and that is where we leave this installment. Next issue, The Caverns of the Keeper. So this mission that was supposed to be just a quick trip over to the other main rebel base on Acuria has kind of gone haywire. Obviously, they have to tell some sort of story, so there has to be some sort of adventure involved. But, you know, if they could just get to the other base, then they would be happy. They can't seem to get off this planet, though. I'm kind of reminded here of the Star Trek episode Miri, which involved a whole lot of children without parents. But that was a very different sort of situation. I'm also reminded of And the Children Shall Lead, whenever the kids lost their parents and didn't care. But not quite either one of those situations being represented here. So we'll have to see what happens as we go through future installments. In the meantime, our main focus for this episode is Star Wars number 12 from Marvel, which has Luke Skywalker, C-3PO, and R2-D2. Very, uh, very beautifully drawn, I might add. Lots of really great true-to-the-film detail on the droids. Don't always get that on the insides. And actually, you don't always get on the covers either. So it's really nice when they do it. This is uh, uh, Luke Skywalker. His hair is looking kind of longish. It's brown, not blonde. They've actually recolored the Luke Skywalker in the little rectangle box in the top left, who's always been appearing every single issue. They recolored his hair there to be a light brown as well. I know Luke kind of had shaggy hair in the first film. In the 70s, a lot of kids had shaggy hair, but he's really going to get some longish hair in these comics before too much longer. So they all three are on the deck of a boat. Luke Skywalker has his lightsaber drawn. It's glowing red. I don't know why it's glowing red, but it's glowing red. And it kind of looks instead of like a beam of light. It looks like some sort of like stalactite or something from a cave. It has these weird ridges and grooves on it that make it look sort of stonish, but it is glowing. And the reason he has his lightsaber is because he's being faced off with several men with guns shouting, we want those robots, boy, and that lightsaber can't stop all of us. 
So looks like he's going to be in a bit of trouble here. Open the story and we get our usual little blurb at the top of the page. I'm probably not going to read it every time. I'll just read it when it strikes me, but it strikes me this time. So Marvel Comics during this period, and actually for a lot of their history, they have had a little blurb at the beginning of the comic to just give you the basic concept of the story that you're reading. You know, that's where you get that Peter Parker was bitten by a radioactive spider and infused with its radioactive rays. Uh, that's where you get that Captain America was, you know, a sentinel of World War II. And in this particular series, you always get told and reminded in case you're a new reader, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, there exists a state of cosmic civil war. A brave alliance of underground freedom fighters has challenged the tyranny and oppression of the awesome galactic empire. This is their story. Stan Lee presents Star Wars, the greatest space fantasy of all. Continuing the saga begun in the film by George Lucas, released by 20th Century Fox. The Rebel Alliance has sent Luke Skywalker to find a new location for their main base after the Battle of the Death Star. But here, on this unnamed planet of the star's son, Drexel, Luke has found instead what may be for him and the two droids, R2-D2 and C-3PO, a Doom World. And Doom World was written and edited by Archie Goodwin. Artists were Carmine Infantino and Terry Austin, letterer John Costanza, and colorist Janice Cohen. And for the consulting editor, instead of Roy Thomas, we now have Jim Shooter. Jim Shooter was the editor of Marvel during this time. So consulting editor, and I'm just sort of like refining the idea as I go along. Like since it was Roy Thomas last time, I assumed that he was there on hand for questions, but didn't have a whole lot of say in the book. Jim Shooter is the consulting editor now. He's the editor of all the books at Marvel, but he probably doesn't have a whole lot of hand in this book. I'm guessing that Star Wars continued to run a little bit differently than the other comics because whenever Roy Thomas started it, he was writing it and he was editing it and the main editor had no say. So now that Roy Thomas is off of the book and Archie Goodwin is doing it, I'm assuming that he's continuing to write it and edit it in his own time with the main editor of Marvel just off on the side in case there's any sort of questions or whatever. You know, he doesn't really have a lot of direct control in the book. He's just there. In any case because I'm not really sure how much the role of the editors really matters to the story of Star Wars, but, you know, just thoughts that occurred to me. In any case, we are going to move on to the story itself, where Luke Skywalker, C-3PO, and R2-D2 are trapped in a pod in the ocean, and off in the distance they see his ship falling into the water as two sea serpents have a bit of a conversation. Luke Skywalker is watching all this in a hand set of binoculars. The rider of one of the sea serpents has done something to the other one so that it's now pushing the spaceship rather than eating it or destroying it. Before he can figure out what's going on there, though, R2-D2 sounds the alarm and they look across the opposite direction and they see three, uh, Luke calls them hydrocraft. They're basically land speeders except on water. They're floating above the water and racing toward them. And it, they start attacking the two sea creatures with Luke Skywalker's pod caught in the middle. The sea creatures fight back by diving in the water and coming up underneath, which wrecks two of the skimmers. I can't really tell why they're attacking or what they're hoping to gain, but they're very upset that the two skimmers were destroyed. And after they, uh, the dragons swim away, the remaining water skimmer speeder thingy notices that Luke Skywalker's pod is bobbing in the water and it looks like metal, so they want it. 
Luke Skywalker is very happy that they're going to be rescued, but he's not entirely sure that it's a positive thing. And C-3PO agrees with him. Why is it, sir, that I have the feeling that we're not going to like this? And a few moments later, as the pod is hauled onto the Hydra craft, the men aboard, who, of course, are dressed pretty gruffly and, and talk pretty roughly, they are a bit dismayed to see that there is a living creature inside. However, they are extremely pleased to see two full-fledged robots in there. Robots are something they really don't see very much, but they do want to be able to use the technological parts inside for whatever it is they use parts for. So they decide to kill the boy. However, before they can, he draws a lightsaber, vramp, which surprises all of them. A lightsaber? The bare-faced little pup is a Jedi! It's amazing what one little word can do. Just the mention of Jedi sends Luke Skywalker into a two-panel reverie, where he remembers that Obi-Wan Kenobi and his father were both Jedi Knights, but of course Luke is not. Ben Kenobi was the last of that proud line, and he had barely started teaching me about the Force when he fell dueling Darth Vader. Yet sometimes I still feel as if he's with me. I think it's worth mentioning that Luke has the impression that Obi-Wan Kenobi is the last of the Jedi. We have seen other indications in other stories that there are other Jedi out there. Certainly Hala on Mimban is a force sensitive of nothing else. And I feel like there have been other mentions that there are other Jedi around out there, but probably not in front of Luke, maybe around Han Solo or something. In any case, Luke Skywalker's experience is pretty limited at this point. So the idea that there may be other Jedi still alive is definitely something he has not internalized yet. But Jedi or no, he starts swinging the lightsaber and reciting his instructions in his head, stretch out with your feelings, divorce your actions from conscious control. And while he's fighting, the other guys decide to come at him from all sides with the idea that he can't swing every way at once. So C-3PO, of course, is just getting worried. He's right, R2. Poor Master Luke was certainly doomed this time. But R2-D2 has a different idea. Badeep? R2, you're leaking lubricant onto the deck. Someone could... And yes, someone does. People start slipping around on the deck of the skimmer. And Luke leaps towards the craft's helm. All right, enough. Any more moves against me or the droids, and I use my lightsaber to fuse these controls into a molten lump. And of course, nobody wants this because then they'd be at the mercies of any dragon lords that come by, which is the name they use for those sea monsters. So Luke tells them to heave their weapons over the side and to take him to this governor they were speaking of. No, this is not going to be a crossover between Star Wars and The Walking Dead. That might be cool. Probably not. But in any case, not that governor. Different governor. Probably not an imperial governor, though. I don't imagine anyone of Tarkin's rank or uh, Asada. Was that the governor we had last uh, in, the, in the book? Tarkin or Asada is going to be out on this backwater planet. I don't know. <laughs> backwater. Because it is a water planet. Ha! <laughs> So where do we go? We turn the page and we see an amazing full-page splash of two giant-sized boats that are so large that houses have been built on them. The masts seem to be giant structures and the cross beams to be cross platforms that house more shelters and dwellings. Everything is covered over with some sort of plant life. Uh, it's just all draped and stringy and looking like it's almost like overgrown fungus or moss or something. But I'm sure it's just some sort of protective covering to keep the water off. So this is pretty amazing. What we have is a water-based culture who dwells on the water 
on their ships, kind of like the Kevin Costner Waterworld story, but, you know, not as technologically advanced as they, I'm sure. Luke tells us that when he first came within scanning distance of this water world, his ship's instruments picked up what he thought was a large landmass. Evidently, it was this. What we still don't know, though, is what the impossible thing was that he encountered that cut him off in his transmission from Leia. I'm wondering if they're going to come back to that or if they're just going to leave it. It's kind of a kind of a strange, unanswered question there. On board the giant boat is the governor, who, uh, he's dressed in some sort of blue tattered uniform, very reminiscent of something like maybe from a hundred years ago on Earth, and a red cape with a white furry lining to it, and some sort of green hard hat from like, I don't know, a modern day army or something, uh, covered in cloth. Anyways, the governor is extremely displeased to be seeing them. Guards, seize everyone aboard. I want them hanged as traitors. In our war with the dragon lords, men are expendable. Skimmers definitely are not. Wait, your honor. Just look what we brought back with us. Robots. And so the guys try to plead for their lives by trading their robots for the fact that they lost the skinners. So the governor agrees to strip down the robots and see what their parts are like, and then he'll decide if the value of the parts of the droids is worth the value of the lost skimmers, and then he'll decide whether or not to hang the people. That's when Luke speaks up. Governor Quarg, you'd better hear me out before you decide anything. I don't think there's a soul on this whole floating mess of yours who knows what these droids are really worth, and in one piece... The lightsaber that Luke is holding identifies him to the governor as a Jedi. And he remembers stories of the Jedi Knights that his father used to tell him. His father respected them as warrior priests or wizards, but he also hated and feared them as well. So I think that's interesting that we have this picture of the Jedi Knight reputation. You know, in modern superhero comics, Superman has, you know, of course, his cosmic superpowers. In modern storytelling, that makes him a little bit feared by some of the populace. Sure, there are plenty of people who love him, but modern stories are definitely playing up the fact that there's a percentage of the people who are afraid of him as well. Some people don't like this, some people do. I'm not here to judge the storytelling, but here to liken it to the Jedi Knights. If you have these people with these immense, almost godlike abilities, and uh, my son and I have been watching The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, where the Jedi powers are much more accentuated, you have these people with these almost godlike abilities, and sure, they're going to be feared. They're going to be distrusted by the common people, at least a certain portion of the common people. And I think that that's an interesting point to bring to the mythology here. I don't think we've seen that before this point. In any case, the governor is not his father, so he decides to hear Luke out before deciding what to do next. While Luke Skywalker figures out what he's going to say to get himself out of this mess, he thinks about what Han Solo would do, which triggers a scene change. We go to the Imperial Star Destroyer that is no longer Imperial, but now piloted by Crimson Jack and his squad of pirates. They have Han Solo's Millennium Falcon on board in the hold. They have Princess Leia in a cell. And Han Solo is on the bridge with Crimson Jack as they head for the Drexel system. Han and Jack are basically just having a bit of a chat. 
since they're just traveling through hyperspace. And that triggers a story of Crimson Jack and how he got hold of this Star Destroyer. Turns out that just after the uh, Rebel Alliance won their first big victory over the Empire forces, i.e. the first Star Wars film, there were many casualties, and one of them was a Star Destroyer whose reactors had been burnt out. They were just adrift in space. And that's when Jack and his people showed up in their little ship, Now, they're very much smaller and not really much match of a Star Destroyer. The Star Destroyer, however, has no reactors and no power. They send out some TIE fighters. Crimson Jack makes light work of them. They board the Star Destroyer and take out the crew, which I think, of course, is pretty amazing. I almost wonder if it's actually almost impossible, because I kind of envision Star Destroyers as kind of like the size of the first Enterprise. Pretty, uh, you know, several hundred people on board, pretty good-sized ship. But hey... That's what he says happened? Then, of course, that's what happened. Crimson Jack is a pirate, and we all know that pirates never exaggerate their stories. But Crimson Jack is a bit tired of being a pirate. He's looking forward to doing something else with his life. And the rebel treasury and the Drexel system that Han Solo has lied about... Of course, Jack doesn't know that he's lied about, but the one that they're heading toward is going to help Crimson Jack realize some of those dreams. But... (laughs) This whole conversation is interrupted because one of the deckhands comes down, starts yelling about how Jolly has gone crazy. And we go to see Jolly. She has her blaster out. She's shooting at other pirates. You worthless bag of nebula dust. I'll fry you for daring to lay a hand on me. Back off, woman. You're the one who started the talk about kissing. Me and my mates just tried to oblige. So, yes. Jolly and her fascination with men and with her budding sexuality that really should have budded some 10 years ago, but for whatever reason didn't. She's all in a tiff. Does she want to be a big, rough and tough tomboy kind of woman? Or does she want to be a softie? She does not like the idea of being a softie. So she's all conflicted. Like I said, it's a weird uh, subplot. Jolly blames Princess Leia whenever Jack asks her what's going on. And Han Solo asks what they were talking about, and that's when Jolly slaps Han Solo and says, About you and how well you kiss, you Corellian clown! And then she stalks off to Crimson Jack's amusement. Meanwhile, in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon, at rest in the cruiser's hold, a certain 100-year-old Wookiee finishes his assigned task. 100 years old, really? I mean, okay, so aliens had different lifespans, whatever, but I would not have thought that Chewbacca would have been that old. He certainly was, you know, an adult during the prequel trilogy because he helped fight off the Imperial forces on Kashyyyk. But yeah, 100 years old. Huh. I'm going to have to look online to see if that's been uh, repeated in other parts of the continuity to see how old he really is. Maybe it's um, a note that the writers of this got from George Lucas or got from the screenplay for Star Wars. That would, One of those you know, little notes and facts that's in the script that doesn't actually make it onto the screen. I'm curious how they came up with that and if it continues to be used. The task that Chewbacca has finished is the computer tab between the Millennium Falcon and Crimson Jack's ship, com- uh, combining all of their star charts together to show the Drexel information. But it doesn't really matter so much because that's whenever they come out of hyperspace right into the Drexel system. And there's only one planet orbiting that star, and it's a water world. And Crimson Jack says, according to our scanners, that's a water world. The rebels couldn't possibly have a treasury there. Well, Solo, I'm waiting to hear about this, but not very long. Jack, everything's okay. Just get the princess up here and I'll prove that to you. Or die trying, he thinks to himself. So Han Solo's moment of truth is here, 
He doesn't really know what to do with this, though, so he wants the princess's help since it was kind of her idea to come here in the first place. And next issue features the Day of the Dragon Lords. And that is the end of our issue. The Star Wars saga continues with Luke Skywalker trying to keep himself alive on the water world of Drexel. Han Solo and Princess Leia trying to keep themselves alive in the space orbit around Drexel long enough to meet up with Luke and rescue him and get back all together. So we have the two plot lines coming together. Looks like it's going to be a pretty big join up next issue. And I hope you'll be there for it. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to send emails, I'll read emails on the air and special email episodes. You can send those to the Star Wars Saga cast at gmail.com. If you just happen across this episode somewhere randomly, more episodes will be found at the Star Wars Saga cast.com or on iTunes under the Star Wars Saga cast. So thank you very much for listening. And until next time, my name is John Wilson. Thank you very much for listening to the Star Wars Saga cast and good night.